Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This episode is called The Blood of the Cancelled, and this has all happened before. So, let's get started. We're going to talk about the age that we live in versus something that happened long ago. Um, in our age of the victim Olympics, where both Christians and non-Christians try to claim the prize of the most outcast, most vilified, and most excluded from society, um, I'd like to share a story from history from the year 177 AD that may be helpful in putting into perspective what anyone in America in the year 2022 has suffered, Christian or otherwise. And this will seem extreme at the outset, uh, but will make sense once I read the story from the second century. And I'm just going to say it. We have no idea what it means to suffer for Christ. We have no idea what heroes of the faith look like any longer. We just haven't seen it happen in our lifetimes. We think we do, but we don't. If you lived in Nigeria, you would. If you lived in America, not so much. Most of us haven't been tested at all yet. Sure, we've been tested in ways, but not like the people I'm about to tell you about. Yes, I've had struggles, but not like Blandina and Adelus. Uh, that's the names of two of the people I'm going to talk about. My point in retelling this event from history is to remind us of the tradition that we inherit that we mostly ignore. We sit comfortably in 2022 and grumble at the need to attend Mass, where we can openly receive the Eucharist. No one is there to stop the faithful from gathering in groups. No one is rounding us up yet. Those luxuries that we ignore were bought with blood. And the first 500 years of the faith have stories that would make the disturbed author of Game of Thrones wins. Uh, we are led to believe right now uh, that the persecutions of Mark Zuckerberg and the Silicon Valley emperors are like the persecutions of Diocletian and the Roman Empire, or Nero, for example. Uh, the story I'm about to read is actually from France, where the budding church was being brutalized. And if anything, this story should assure you that having an imaginary presence online get deleted is nothing like what the early Christians suffered. As they were meeting in secret, out of love for Christ and changing hearts and minds in flesh and bone meetings, one soul at a time. Now, these modern cancellations should be of concern, absolutely, because they do mirror what happens repeatedly in the history of Christianity, especially in the early stages of persecution. But we are not yet reliving anything remotely close to what was happening with the early Christians, meaning those who lived before we even had a New Testament to read. These people met in the flesh and told the story of Jesus to one another. There was nothing virtual about their secret meetings, nothing meta about their willingness to do anything to keep their faith alive, nor was there anything simulated about the path they took on their journey from social outcast to martyrdom. Let's walk through this example from Lyon, France in the year 177. And the first part of this should sound very familiar, actually. So this is Saint Pothinus and his companions, the martyrs of Lyon and Vienne from AD 177. The persecution began unofficially with social ostracism. We were excluded from houses, from the baths, and from the market. And with popular violence, stoning, plundering, blows, insults, and everything that an infuriated crowd loves to do to those it hates, then it was taken up officially. That's from Butler's Lives of the Saints, Volume 2, page 454. That's the section I'm going to be reading on. Now, this parallels what we see today, ominously, but not surprisingly. Social ostracism is underway, 
as Christendom is now seen as the enemy. But is this anything new? And the answer to that is, it's not. Witnessing to your faith is now a good way to lose your job, to lose your friends, and most likely to lose your internet accounts, and maybe even your money, as banks have now joined this game of cancellation. However, as anyone who finds Jesus knows, those things don't satisfy. Not like God does. God alone satisfies, as Thomas Aquinas once said. Money, friends, reputations, and jobs, those are all nice-to-haves. They are not must-haves. There is only one must-have, and that is faith in Jesus Christ, because he is the Redeemer and the path to salvation. The one who understands that redemption comes from this would be a fool to throw it away and would be raked with regret to abandon the one person who ever saved them. Think of Peter and his three denials. But as we continue through this account, we can recognize that there is much more to lose than friends or internet accounts. Now the story continues with an attack on the Eucharist, as has been going on since Jesus first gave the bread of life discourse, and since Judas first turned away in John chapter 6. The attack on the Eucharist goes hand in hand with persecution and seems to resurface often, almost every time Christians are mocked or violated in the lives of the saints. Now here's the next section. They accused us of feeding on human flesh like Theestes and of committing incest like Oedipus, as well as other abominations, which is unlawful for us even to think of, and which we can scarcely believe ever to have been per perpetrated by men. So that these same accusations are happening today. Um, in my very next post, this is the topic, because where I work in 2022, the same accusation has been made that Catholics are cannibals. And that is one of the laziest attacks on Catholicism possible, but it makes for a good scandal, so every generation trots it out. And since the year 177, they used it, they used it again, they use it today in 2022. And every generation of Catholics have to explain it. The Eucharist may be the most hot-button issue of all time because it requires faith, which is the whole point. Uh, so this has been going on since the beginning, where even St. Paul said to those who did not believe in the Eucharist, that they could not receive communion. And this is a never-ending line in the sand for Catholics um, and Eastern Orthodox uh, because the Eucharist is the yes to the whole Paschal mystery, which is the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The linkage from the Last Supper to being seated at the right hand of God all flows through the Eucharist. For anyone throwing the accusation of cannibalism around today, you can bet with certainty that those people have never read and possibly never even heard of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, where they can read all about it. The charges of incest and cannibalism also go way back for non-believers. Why is that? Well, because it's great slander for sensationalism, and it still gets much tread today. People love a scandal like that. Uh, those who haven't those who haven't heard it before, they clutch their pearls and exclaim, "What Catholics eat people? You know, Lord save us! They're, they're, they, this is great headlines. It's like the National Enquirer of the ancient world and still today. And you can hardly go online without someone associating Christians with inbreeding. So these same charges from 177 A.D. are happening yet." The accusers would probably be shocked to learn that the practice of cousin marriage or inbreeding and incest actually went away because of Christianity as the church outlawed it in the 6th century, making it extremely strict, so much that it had to later loosen the rule in the 1200s because, well, 
let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, I'll just leave a link here in this article if you want to read canon law and the history on consanguinity. Okay, so social ostracism and mockery of the Eucharist are underway, as well as some beatings, but it's just the beginning of the story. Let's go back to the year 177 and follow what happens next in Lyon, France. When these things were made public, all were exasperated against us, including some who had formerly shown friendliness. The fury of the mob, the governor and the soldiers, fell most heavily upon Sanctus, a deacon, on Attalus, who had always been a pillar and support of the church, and on Blandina, a slave woman. When we were all in fear, and her mistress, according to the flesh, who was herself an athlete among the martyrs, was apprehensive lest Blandina should not be able to should not be able from bodily weakness to make her confession boldly. She was endued with so much power that even those who in relays tortured her from morning till evening grew faint and weary. All marveled how she could possibly survive, so torn and broken was her body. But in the midst of her suffering, she seemed to derive refreshment and peace from continually repeating the words, I am a Christian, and nothing vile is done amongst us. The deacon, Sanctus, also endured cruel torments with unflinching courage. To all questions that were put to him, he only replied, I am a Christian. When all the ordinary forms of torture had been exhausted, red-hot plates were applied to the tenderest parts of his body until he appeared a shapeless mass of swollen flesh, and three days later, when he had revived, the same treatment was repeated. There was a woman named Biblias, who was known to be frail and timid. Subjected to torture, however, she woke, as it were, from a deep sleep and directly contradicted the blasphemers, saying, How can those eat children who are forbidden to taste the blood of even of brute beasts? From that moment, she confessed herself a Christian and was added to the company of the martyrs. Many, many of the prisoners, especially the young and untried, died in prison from torture, from the foul atmosphere and from the brutality of their gaolers. But some who had already suffered terribly and seemed at the last gasp lingered on confirming the rest. Bishop Pothinus, in spite of his 90 years and manifold infirmities, was dragged before the tribunal amid the railing of the populace. Upon being asked by the governor, who was the god of the Christians, he replied, if you are worthy, you shall know. And thereupon he was beaten, kicked, and pelted until he was nearly insensible. Two days later, he died in prison. Materus, Sanctus, Blandina, and Attalus were exposed to the beasts in the amphitheater. Materus and Sanctus ran, ran the gauntlet of whips, endured the mauling by beasts, and bore everything else that was done to them at the suggestion of the people. Finally, they were placed in the iron chair and roasted until the odor of their scorched flesh filled the nostrils of the crowd. But their courage never faltered, nor could Sanctus be induced to utter a word except the confession he had made from the beginning. After they had throughout that day supplied not merely the varied entertainment demanded in the games, but a spectacle to the world, they were offered up at last in the sacrifice of their lives. But for Blandina, the end had not come yet. She was hung from a stake to be the prey of the beast let loose upon her. The sight of her as she hung with outstretched arms like one crucified and the fervor of her prayers put heart into the other combatants. 
None of the animals would touch her, so she was taken back to prison to await a further contest. Attalus, a man of note, was loudly called for by the crowd and was led around the amphitheater with a tablet borne before him on which was written, This is Attalus the Christian. From the outset, the confessors had given extraordinary, er, extraordinary evidence of their charity and humility. Though ready to give an explanation of their faith to all, they accused none, but prayed for their persecutors like St. Stephen, as well as for their lapsed brethren. So that is a f quite brutal scene of what's happening in the amphitheater in Lyon. Um, and then what happens after that? Well, surely all of those Christians who ran in fear or abandoned their faith stayed hidden, right? That's what you would expect. This type of spectacle of torture that pleased the crowd surely made everyone else cower in fear, right? No, of course, the opposite happens. It encouraged the others as they see plainly the faith in the heroic fallen, a faith far greater and more meaningful than anything the secular powers could offer and something worth infinitely more than this life here on earth as dying for Christ's name echoes in the words and actions of Jesus himself as he told his follow followers exactly what was to come. He said, this is my commandment, love one another as I love you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. It was not you who chose me, but I who chose you. And if the world hates you, realize that it hated me first. You do not belong to the world and I have chosen you out of the world. The world hates you. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And they will do all of these things to you on account of my name because they do not know the one who sent me. Whoever hates me also hates my father. That's from John chapter 15. So then what happens in the scene in, in the amphitheater in Lyon? A doctor then stands up. And by doing so, he enters this river of torture, abandoning everything. His name is Alexander. Suddenly his reputation his career, his family, his good name, it no longer matters. Here's back to the, the text from the lives of the saints. Those who had formerly denied now boldly confessed Christ and were added to the sacred order of those who bore witness. Only those few remained outside who had never been Christians at heart. A physician named Alexander, a Phrygian by birth, was present while they were under examination. He had lived many years in Gaul and was well known for his love of God and for his boldness in spreading the gospel. Standing close to the dock, he so openly encouraged the prisoners that no one could fail to notice him. The crowd, incensed at the profession of Christianity by those who had previously abjured, raised an outcry against Alexander as the instigator of the change, and the governor asked him who and what he was. A Christian was the reply and he was summarily condemned to be thrown to the beasts. And there's much more here. Um, the defense of the faith and the Eucharist continues. The woman named Blandina undergoes ongoing torture and her children are killed in front of her. So let's talk about Attalus and Blandina a little more, read a little more here. Attalus, when he was being roasted in the iron chair exclaimed, this is in truth a consuming of human flesh and it is you who do it. We neither eat men nor commit any other enormity. After all these, continues the letter, on the last day of the single combats, Blandina was brought again into the amphitheater with Ponticus, a boy of about 15. They had been compelled day after day to watch the torture of the rest and were now urged to swear by the idols. 
Because they refused and set them at naught, the multitude pitied neither the age of the boy nor the sex of the woman. They exposed them to all the torments, endeavoring unsuccessfully from time to time to induce them to swear. Ponticus, encouraged as the heathen could see by the exhortations of his sister, nobly endured every moment, every torment, and then gave up the ghost. The blessed Blandina, last of all, like a mother of high degree, after encouraging her children and sending them on before as victors to the king, hastened to join them, rejoicing and triumphing over her departure as if she had been summoned to a marriage feast instead of being cast to the beasts. After the scourges, after the wild animals, after the frying pan, she was thrown at last into a net and exposed to a bull. When she had been tossed for a time by the beast and was completely upheld by her faith and her communing with Christ as to have become insensible of what was being done to her, she too was immolated, the heathen themselves confessing that they had never known a woman to show such endurance. The bodies of the martyrs were cast into the Rhone River that no relic or memory of them might remain on earth. But the record of their glorious victory over death was quickly borne over the sea to the east and has been handed on by the church throughout the ages. The martyrdom of the rest took various forms. In the beautiful words of the letter, they offered up to the Father a single wreath, but it was woven of diverse colors and flowers of all kinds. It was meet that the noble athletes should endure a varied conflict, even a great victory that they might be entitled in the end to receive the crown supreme of a life everlasting. Now, this is not something from the cult of martyrs where people were rushing in because it was cool. Uh, that's not from the church. That's actually as evil as anything else if people are rushing to be martyred. That's from the devil. Um, but let's notice before I wrap this up that these martyrdoms were not done to be a part of that, um, where people rush into the fire. That's not from God. But in days where Christianity is the enemy, as we're seeing it becoming that again now, um, witnesses to faith will arise like Blandina and Attalus. Another Alexander will step into the breach. Uh, God doesn't play our games. He doesn't pursue being cool or seeking worldly status. He ignores those things. The martyrs that get celebrated are the ones that had nothing to gain and everything to lose, who clung to God in the great storm of their life as representatives of the faith to show others that the things of this world do not matter, not when compared to the joy of finding peace with Jesus. A comparison in the Bible is made to silver or gold being purified in a fire. The dross, as it's called, leaves the gold or silver when it is heated into liquid and cooled into pure bullion or coins. The dross gets burned away in different ways for different people, as we each have a temperature that we can handle, and God knows exactly that temperature and will only give us what we can endure, and some can endure it to death. Your temper our temperatures are much likely lower than Blandina and Adelus, but recall the words. For as Jesus said, by your endurance, you will gain your soul. And that is the call to cling to Jesus when everything else burns away. And everyone gets that opportunity to stand in their own furnace, whether it is dramatic or not, whether it is all at once or over 30 years. So yes, some people's dross may be getting burned away by the social ostracism of their workplace or by getting kicked off of Twitter or Facebook or TikTok. Corporations are asking us literally to bow to idols and many have done so. 
burning away the dross is an ongoing process as you are conformed to the life of Christ. Mockery and social ostracism and forced agreement is certainly the beginning and a harbinger of more to come. To which I say, what else is new? This has happened before, and it will happen again. The current culture may even be a blessing to Christians in many ways because it puts us into the same situation as Abraham in the book of Genesis, who was called out of his homeland. He had to make a choice. Was he going to follow the culture or follow God? And that is yet our choice today, the very same one as Abraham. A calling comes to those who God chooses, and the sheep hear his call. From John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Being called out of New York or Los Angeles or Silicon Valley is actually a gift. A step in opposition to the culture is the first step toward God in joining his fold. Even getting kicked off a social media platform can set you free from the chains of technology and ultimately the lies that were told, particularly in the media, uh, particularly in all of the advertising that you're, you're sold on every day. Few people today realize the immense campaign against Christianity that has taken place. But once the light strikes you, the billboards and alarms appear everywhere. Only through a massive coordinated effort has the message of Christ been diluted. And it still, it still rings out to those who hear the call. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, technology gave anti-Christians a tool that Nero or Diocletian or Lenin or Mao would have loved to have in suppressing the word of God. So those past emperors, uh, they resorted to murdering Christ's followers, but it's far more effective to try to talk a person out of his or her faith than to create martyrs. And that is why the main effort now is to silence anyone who speaks the doctrines of the church of Christ, because the other option, the only other one, is to kill them, and that is bad public relations. The bloody option has been tried over and over and failed miserably, and it will fail again. One martyr makes a hundred new Christians, just like the many-headed hydra of Greek myth, where if you cut one head off, three'd grow in its place, or five, or fifty. Many nations have tried the killing spree as the solution to ending the message of Christ, and it has proved ineffective. Governments throughout time have tried to kill the idea of Christ dying on the cross to take away our sins by killing the followers. The governments of Rome, the Ottomans, the French, the Soviets, Mexico, countless others have tried to destroy it this way, right up to today in Nigeria, where the threshold of genocide has been passed against, they are now killing Christians at the level of what they're called genocide. The message of Christ persists, despite the massive efforts of the sword. The greatest error any Christian ever made was to think the message of Christ would be delivered by the sword. And any leader that ever claimed otherwise was as confused then as those today who claim that Jesus didn't command chastity. The spin of Jesus' words changes with the desires of the era. Thus, when the lust for gold and conquest seized the minds of Europeans, the false gospel of the sword seemed like a good tool for bringing civilization to savages. And we've done the same thing in America with the false gospel of democracy, as we brought that by the sword, and it didn't stick because it was not from God. So today, the intention of the enemies of the church is to silence this message, to ostracize it, and to make it appear evil, just like they did in Lyon, France in the year 177 AD, 
AD because that is all the enemies have. In their attempts to silence and ostracize, they don't realize that the truth always comes out and it cannot be suppressed by the swords, sword, but neither can it be silenced by the government. For the moment, it is prohibited to be Christian. The sheep will again hear his voice. In short, there's no way to suppress God because, well, he's God. He's outside of space and time. He calls to those who hear him. If God wanted for this to play out through violence, he would do that. And Jesus even says so. And this is in the garden when Peter takes a sword and strikes at one of the Roman soldiers' ears during Jesus' arrest. Matthew 26. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? St. John, later, when he was writing the book of Revelation, echoed this exact sentiment, mentioning that prison and death must sometimes be the way that we adhere to God and spread his message. So from Revelations chapter 13, let anyone who has an ear listen. If you are to be taken captive into captivity, you go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The culture we have now pretends to have sheathed the sword and is trying to defeat the message of Christ with words, with arguments, and often with well-dressed lies and shiny campaigns. And to make matters even worse, we have fallen men and women in the church, which is not surprising for anyone that understands the fall and original sin, as we are all fallen. I'll say it again, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. But every tool in the box is being used now to stifle and remove the full message of Christ from our society in America. And to the unbelievers, silence means victory. The silencing of Christians is the name of the game game now, not the killing of them. The canceling of them is the cure, or so they think. But this will also fail, as this method too has been tried time and time again. And while the culture attempts to delete and cut out the parts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that don't fit, with the marketing of sex cells and to each his own, Christianity is once again having the dross purified from it, and new saints will emerge. The, pro- the problem with knowing that Jesus is the truth is that everything else that is being sold becomes a cheap trinket, and only those who do not know Jesus would make that trade. The knife of the cancel culture will end up cutting its own arteries in the end, because it is wielded by maniacs, not a skilled surgeon. But as for us who know that the victory is already won, we are free from the honor and shame culture that is re-emerging. No matter what lies and tales are told, the truth stands. This is why merely saying that an unborn baby is a person, a human being, sets the maniacs ablaze with hate. A simple truth such as that exposes the fragility of the lies. In the same way, saying that God created them male and female is a new flashpoint because why because it is true for all ages and all people who ever lived until two years ago the mob rule taking shape in america precedes a much larger battle ahead as spiritual blindness releases the scapegoat mechanism from its pen but we should fear nothing because god has already won our reputations are not our bodies nor they are they our souls Reputation is like a third aftermarket bolt-on entity that Jesus clearly was willing to let die himself. In fact, he was even willing to let his body be killed. 
What was the one thing he taught us to worry about? Losing our eternal soul. Our bodies are good, but they will be resurrected in the last day. The loss of our reputation can lead to infinite gains, actually, and losing the body, if done for Christ, can do the same. But losing the soul, that is what we must fear losing the most. That is the only one that separates us from God. So in our decision-making, the question must become, will the choices I make today draw my soul closer to God or push me away? The idea of canceling is just another term for scapegoating, for blaming and shaming a perceived enemy for words or ideas. And even if the use of the word, even that word cancel, it speaks much of our age of indifference as if people were just magazines. You cancel a subscription to a magazine. You do not cancel a human being. But the idea of canceling, it gives us a major clue about what our online lives really are. They are not real. In fact, if we are giving an ordering or primacy to what matters in life, reputation should be at the bottom of the list of these three things. At least if we listen to the words of Jesus and actually read the Gospels and not just think of him as a hippie Big Lebowski version. Soul is first. The salvation of souls is why he came here. He did not come to save reputations. Otherwise, he might have come as Nero or Diocletian or Caesar or someone. Soul has primacy, then the body, and then, if time and weather permits, we can have our reputation, but only if it is ordered to the two commandments, which have the all-important order of loving God first and loving others second. The most notorious scapegoat of all time went by the name of Jesus Christ, and he showed us how to suffer, how to experience a reputation ruined, how to absorb the spread of lies, the false accusations, the mockery, and even whips, beatings, and crucifixion. Much of the time, the death of our reputation is the step we need to be reborn in the spirit because reputation clouds what truly matters. Our ego, our self, it's what gets in the way. You might even say that if we are not getting canceled from Twitter or Facebook, we are probably not using those evangelization tools correctly because the Christian message will not be praised if it's told properly and with boldness. The only good news that is from Jesus and the apostles is the one that will get you killed, which is why the church continues to be so hated. After all, how much more clear could Jesus be? He warned us. He warned us. If the world hates you, realize it hated me first. You do not belong to the world, and I have chosen you out of the world. The world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, and they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. Whoever hates me also hates my father. That's again, John chapter 15. So whenever the question to go left or go right arises, the answer is to go up, to lift your eyes to the cross. Jesus preached chastity, poverty, transformative suffering, and even in the face of all that, love for your enemies. And that is the answer and the same as it was for Jesus, as it was for the first martyr in St. Stephen, for Peter, for Paul, for Blandina and Attalus, and for us today. When the mobs come from the left or the right, the answer is to carry the cross as Jesus did and not cave into the ways of this world because the freedom that Christ brought is not to fear physical death or reputation death. Rather, we must fear spiritual death, which is separation from God. And do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. That's one of the many times Jesus talked about hell. For anyone who doesn't think Jesus talked about hell, he talked about it more than just about anyone in the Bible, maybe the most of all. 
Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the online mob is the beginning of a different kind of punishment. That's eternal punishment. The Christians who came before our era suffered far more from economic exclusion to slander to alienation and horrific, horrific tortures, torture, so that we can sit in our churches comfortably today and complain about a 10-minute homily being too long. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll be back to talk about the Eucharist in the next episode. Thanks, everybody.